Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Thinking About Norway. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 14th, 2011. In Norway last month, Anders Breivik went on a shooting and bombing rampage that killed nearly 100 people. He hated the idea that an ethnically homogeneous country like Norway worked so hard for a multicultural society that welcomed Muslims. In the United States, our debt ceiling debacle showed how the politics of ideological purity prevented the compromise and cooperation that are necessary for a greater civic good. And in the failed state of Somalia, the worst famine in 60 years has pushed millions of people to the brink of starvation. These three examples of what divides humanity stand in stark contrast to the readings for this week, in which God warmly welcomes every person with his embrace. The first pages of the Bible describe the division of humanity into a babel of confused and divided languages. We've been living that history since the dawn of civilization. But that's only the beginning of the human story, not its end. God intends something far better for us. The very last pages of the Bible, in fact, picture a city composed of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The particular story of the one man Jesus includes a universal welcome to every person of every time and place. Jesus unites what divides us. In him are many causes of exclusion become opportunities for embrace. Jesus, himself a man of the margins of society, brings the outsider inside. No outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. The self-righteous religious experts criticized him as a friend of sinners. And so the readings this week show how this is true in the areas of sexuality and nationality. Ancient Israel excluded eunuchs from its community as so-called blemished people. We read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. People with damaged testicles in Leviticus 21:20 were only one of many groups of people who were stigmatized as disfigured and defective and therefore excluded by the community. Whether by birth or by castration, eunuchs could not reproduce. They were biologically inferior and therefore liturgically excluded. Eunuchs were deformed and incomplete human beings. Castrating your enemy was a way to humiliate him even after death. 1 Samuel 18.27 Eunuchs were at best safe and harmless people who could serve in a king's court. But Isaiah 56 for this week speaks of God's reversal of this exclusion and condescension. Let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that will not be cut off. The play on words in Isaiah 56, 3-5 is shocking. Your genitals might be cut off, but your name will never be cut off from God. Instead of being rejected from the temple, eunuchs will be remembered in the temple. Jesus, as he so often does, likewise brings the outsider eunuch inside. He goes beyond eunuchs who were born that way or made that way by men. In Matthew 19, 12, he gives pride of place to people who've made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. The brilliant scholar Origen is perhaps the best example in the early church of taking Matthew 19, verse 12, literally. And then in Acts chapter 8, Luke portrays the Ethiopian eunuch as a paradigm of vibrant faith rather than of liturgical exclusion. And so what has often been a source of humiliation and exclusion, a putative sexual deformity, has in God's economy become a sign of divine acceptance. Psalm 67 for this week does for nationality what Isaiah does for sexuality. It expands the boundaries of God's embrace to include people who were vilified as enemies and outsiders. I'm always amazed at how some of the psalms move beyond the parochial to the global. The ancient poet for this week comes from a geopolitically marginal people, and yet he prays for God's blessings to fall on what he calls all nations. God is not a territorial God, he says. He's the Lord of all nations and peoples. And so he invites, quote, all the ends of the earth, end quote, to offer praise and thanks. Similarly, Isaiah 56 joins nationality to his example of sexuality. We read in Matthew, uh, Isaiah 56, Let no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely excuse me, excuse me, exclude me from his people. For God's temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And such is the teaching of Jesus in this week's gospel. A Canaanite woman who knew that in the eyes of the Jews she was a despised dog, nevertheless earned praise as a woman of great faith. Practically speaking, for some time now, Christianity's geographic center of gravity has shifted away from the white and western world to Africa, Asia, and South America. The centers of the church's universality are no longer in Geneva, Rome, Paris, London, and New York, but rather in Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. The small Jewish sect <coughs> that started in Jerusalem has today extended to the ends of the earth. In what used to be a foreign mission field is now center of vibrant faith. It's a short step to move beyond the categories of nationality and sexuality to many others, to economics, politics, gender, and socioeconomic class. 
In Christ, writes Paul to the Galatians in 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christians are thus radical egalitarians when it comes to the love of God. No person has an inside track. We are all equidistant from the heart of God. No nation is exceptional or privileged in his eyes. A Bosnian Muslim is no further away from God's love than an American Christian. A Honduran Pentecostal is no closer to God's love than an Oxford atheist. In the epistle for this week, Paul levels the playing field between Jew and Gentile. He says that all of us are in the same boat. We read in Romans 11.32, God has bound all people over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all people. The many causes then that divide humanity might abound. But Paul says these are opportunities for God's grace to abound all the more. For books this week, I review Marcus Borg. The title, Speaking Christian, Why Christian Words Have Lost Their Meaning and Power, and How They Can Be Restored. New York, Harper Collins, 2011, 248 pages. If you've been a church person for a long time, you might resonate with Marcus Borg that many Christian words have lost their punch due to overfamiliarity. And yet, on the other hand, many other people in our culture are ignorant of even a basic vocabulary of faith. Borg hopes to reclaim our Christian lexicon by proposing a more authentic and alternate meanings to words like sin, salvation, mercy, and righteousness. Unfortunately, what he's really done is written the same book again for about the tenth time. If you've read Marcus Borg before, you won't find anything new in this book. As he's done before, Borg locates the problem in what he calls a heaven-hell framework and a literal reading of the Bible concerning the afterlife, sin, and forgiveness, Jesus' substitutionary death, and believing in this story for salvation. He specifically says that he doesn't intend to sound pejorative or patronizing, but he's only partially successful in that regard, like when he writes about the faith of his own youth. To restore our Christian vocabulary, Borg proposes what he calls a historical, metaphorical approach to reading the Bible that he says offers more, not less, or what he calls a surplus of meaning. Borg rejects doctrines like substitutionary atonement. It's not in the Bible, he says. He likewise rejects the factuality of the empty tomb as irrelevant. For him, salvation is not about a future in heaven, but about personal and political transformation today. He admits that sin is an important biblical concept, but says it should not be our macro metaphor for our relationship with God. We do better to include other concepts like exile, idolatry, sloth, and hubris. Borg says he's agnostic about heaven and the afterlife, 
but also that he's convinced that when we die, we do not die into nothingness, but we die into God. Borg is one of a few prominent New Testament scholars who writes for a general audience, who's not embarrassed to declare his passion for a life of faith, who shares examples from his own life, who was both unapologetic and generally ironic in presenting his views, and on top of it all is a good writer. After reading a half a dozen of his books, though, I'd enjoy something fresh and creative from him. In the meantime, if you want to renew your Christian vocabulary of faith, I recommend two books. Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith by Kathleen Norris, and Wishful Thinking, A Seeker's ABC by Frederick Buechner. For a film this week, I review a movie from China. The title is called The World from 2004. Chinese film, filmmaker Zhang Qijia uses a clever location to explore modern China's uncertain place in the larger world. His film is set in Beijing's World Park that features authentic, if tacky, one-third size replicas of the world's iconic places. The Giza Pyramids, the Eiffel Tower, the Taj Mahal, Manhattan and the World Trade Towers, London's Big Ben, and so on. A monorail circles the impeccably clean grounds in 15 minutes, accompanied by a sterile soundtrack. Against this faux background, a young couple struggles for a genuine human relationship. Tai Sheng is a security guard. His girlfriend Tao is a performer. Like many millions of Chinese, they've left their provincial homes to make money in the city that's impossible to earn elsewhere. But Tao worries that the theme park will, quote, turn me into a ghost. And when a real airplane flies overhead, she observes, who flies on airplanes? I've never even known anyone who's been on an airplane. Their stormy relationship speaks to personal and national challenges faced by the people and nation of China. This film is in Mandarin with English subtitles. Again, the title of the film, The World, from the year 2004. And finally for this week, we've posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, 1865 to 1939. The title is simply Politics. And the poem begins with a quotation from Thomas Mann. In our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in political terms. William Butler Yeats, Politics How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about. And there's a politician that is both read and thought. And maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 14th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.